0: You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. series this fall we started out with called the Paradoxical Faith. And we are talking about different doctrines in Christianity and particularly looking at at their sort of paradoxical aspects. What we mean by a paradox is something that seems like in a contradiction, an apparent contradiction that is actually true. Um, There's a great theologian named G.K. Chesterton who once said that A paradox is at the very heart of Christianity. And he said it is precisely the paradoxical shape of its doctrine that allows it to speak to deep and philosophical problems. What he identified, what all theologians identify, is that the Christian faith, the shape of its doctrine is paradoxical. And what we mean by that is it'll have something that's On one side, and something that almost seems to be the polar opposite that will characterize a doctrine. Let me give you, think about the four we've been over real quickly. One, we talked about God. There's a paradox with God. God is just, yet he's merciful. He's a God of wrath, yet he's a God of compassion and love. And that seems to be a bit of a paradox. Jesus is fully God, yet he's fully man. That's a paradox. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is described as being powerful, yet sensitive. That is a paradox. And lastly, if you looked at man, at us, we found out that all human beings, humanity, is paradoxical in that we are majestic. We're created in the image of God, yet we're depraved. We're made out of dirt. And so we've looked at these paradoxes and just sort of examined about them. And as we've looked at them, we've found there are really empowering truths in these paradoxes once we've looked at them and uncovered them. And today I want to talk about another topic uh, that's very paradoxical. And it's the topic of grace. Grace. Now, grace is called the seminal doctrine of the Christian faith. Grace, the way Christians understand it, is very, very unique to every other religion. Grace is amazing. The song Amazing Grace is literally the most popular song in human history. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Grace is amazing. But... It is also perplexing and it's troubling and it's challenging because of a paradox that is in the Christian doctrine of grace. And this paradox was illustrated once by a conversation I heard years ago between a talk show host named Phil Donahue. Back when I was young, there was a guy named Phil Donahue out of Chicago. He had a talk show. And he once had on an evangelical pastor on there. And he was arguing with him and fighting with him. And he asked him this question. It's very contrived, but it's very interesting what he asked. He said, suppose back in the days of World War II, in a Nazi concentration camp, a German guard tortures and kills one of the Jewish prisoners. Years later, after the war, that German guard feels sorry for what he's done, feels bad for it. He repents of his sins and he asks Jesus Christ to come be his personal Lord and Savior. Will that guard go to heaven and the man he murdered not? Again, A very contrived scenario. But it really gets to the heart of what is perplexing about grace. Because we understand this in Christianity. There's two characteristics of grace that seem to be contradictory. One is grace is inclusive, grace reaches everybody regardless, it is inclusive. It is for all of humanity. It's for all. Yet, grace is exclusive. It comes by one Savior only. And this is illustrated in this verse here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 3 says this. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants... All people. Everybody say all. All All people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. Everybody say one. One One God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So we see in this passage, and this was an early passage used in the church. It was a um, something they would use. They would say over and over again. They would recite it, and they would say it at their services because this was really important content. They wanted them to learn this. And what they understood early on about Jesus is he was he died for all people, and God wanted all people to experience salvation. But that salvation was understood to be this: one God. There is one God, and there is one. Mediator between God and man. One go between. There is one person who joins humanity to God and that was a human being, an actual person, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and he did it by one event when he gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this is what we believe in Christianity. This is the essence of grace. It is inclusive, all people, but one Savior, one event, connecting them to one God. When we go through the the Christian faith over and over again, we see this, that that grace is the vehicle by which we come to experience Christ. In the verse we read in our inspiration, Titus chapter 3, let me reread this to you starting in verse 4 when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Again, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out generously through Jesus our Lord, so that having been justified by grace, we might become the heirs of eternal life. Grace is the vehicle. Over and over again when you read the Bible, it'll say we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. And it's really important that we ask this question. What kind of vehicle is grace? If it is the vehicle, what's this vehicle like? Now, let's again understand salvation as you and I going from where we are to where God is. Sort of a mediator, a journey. How are we gonna make this journey? We need a vehicle. Now, I can make this journey by walking. If I was to go from here to Atlanta, I could walk. If I walk from here to Atlanta, who is doing all the work? Who Who is the most important factor in that journey? It is who? Me, I am the only factor, isn't that correct? If somebody walks from Athens to Atlanta in that journey, they are the only factor involved. If on the other hand though, I get a bicycle, it's a lot easier journey because what, I'm sharing the load with what? With a vehicle, a really pretty good vehicle. I can get there a lot quicker, a lot easier, a lot less effort, but it's a combination. It's my effort and this vehicle working together to get me to where I need to be. But if I were to drive an automobile and let's all thank God for automobiles. What happens? That vehicle literally does all the work. I just, it does all the work. You don't sweat. You don't burn a calorie. The vehicle, you just, the vehicle does the work. This is what grace is. Grace is an automobile. It does all the work. It does all the work. And so often we think that our Christian life is a bike ride. Where it's it's us and God together. No, 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 no. Salvation is all God's work. What did he say there in Titus? He saved us. Repeated it three times. He saved us. He saved us. He saved us. us. You know, the Bible is a fascinating book. It's thousands of years old. It was written over about a 2,000 year period. The authors of the Bible, they're... Backgrounds varied. There were shepherds that wrote the Bible. There were farmers. There were doctors. There were lawyers. There were kings. There were all. There were preachers and prophets. All kind of people authored books in the Bible over thousands of years. But the Bible has within it, despite different authors and different ages of time, it has a narrative arc. It has a consistent thread. That runs throughout it. And you can see it very early, right at the very beginning. There's a story in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, we know about the story, they, they eat of the fruit, they sin, they find out they're naked, they're fallen, they're depraved, they're ashamed. And, and does anybody know what did they do to cover up their shame and their guilt? They made what? They made fig leaves, right? Remember that? They, they cover themselves up. Not a great covering. You know, you don't want to go out in fig leaves. It didn't work real well. But that's their best attempt. Hey, we're going to cover what we've done up. We're going to make up for our sin and our shame and our guilt by covering ourselves. Making for ourselves. And as they're leaving, something really interesting happens. God, they leave the garden. And as they get out, the Bible says God himself made skins to cover them. Not them stitching together fig leaves. God Himself says, look, that's not going to work. You can't cover your sin with your own works and your own efforts and this silly thing. I'm going to make skins. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to personally make sure you're covered. But I'm the one that's going to do it. I'm going to do the work. As we go throughout the Bible, there are several stories. There are several sermons. There are several episodes of this all throughout the Bible. One, I'll give you one other example you may be familiar with. There was a young man named Jacob who had literally stolen his brother's inheritance and was running for his life and was sleeping out in the middle of the wilderness, guilty and desperate and a complete mess. And one night while he's sleeping, he's not thinking of God, he's not thinking of anybody but himself. He's sleeping on his heads up against a stone. And he has a dream. And in that dream, he sees a ladder coming from heaven to earth. And God was speaking to him, this is how I'm going to provide. I am coming down from heaven to earth. This is not you coming up here. I am coming to you. I am bringing salvation with me. And that story goes all throughout the Bible. There's a beautiful poem, a prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter... A 59 of his book, verse 16. God looks around, he sees nobody can bring salvation. And he says, I'm going to come do it myself. 800 years before Jesus, Isaiah was prophesying. And in that, God said, nobody can bring salvation to humanity. I'm going to come do it myself. I'm going to put the burden of the salvation of humanity completely on me. I'm going to be the vehicle through which all humanity can experience salvation. And we see this arc all throughout the Bible. Literally, the name Jesus Christ means in Hebrew, God saves. God saves. The story of grace. All throughout the Bible. God's bringing it. God's doing it. God's working it out. And the grace that we have in Christianity, the key word to understanding it is the word unconditional. It's unconditional. There's no conditions. It's not if you will. That's a condition. If you will, you can be. It it is not based on if you will. It is based on these three words because He has. Because He has. Salvation is not possible, if you will. Salvation is possible because He has. And that is the message of grace. And when Paul talks about grace in Romans chapter 3, he talks about it, and you can flash it up on the screen there. There's a great verse. I can read it to you. It says, The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to, again, that powerful word, all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ. The only condition that a human being has to meet, to experience and be qualified, to experience the grace of God is you have to have sinned. If you've sinned, you can experience the grace of God. Look what he says. They're all. There's not Jew or Greek. We get so hung up on distinction in our culture. He's, you know, this, this is this is not a distinctive thing. I don't care what your race is. You can be a Jew. You can be a Gentile. It's all. You can be rich. You can be poor. It's all. You can be up, down, with all. All, you know what all means in the Greek? It means all, yes. All means all. All means all. And see, this is counterintuitive to us. This is not how human beings think. You see, we think there's got to be a line. You're inter- you're, there's got to be a line down here. You've got to meet these conditions, not this. There's, there's got to be something. We have a line right down the middle on this side, people go to heaven, this side you don't. This side are good people. Social workers, teachers, nurses, you know, pastors. (laughs) This side are bad people. Drug dealers, pornographers, lawyers and politicians. That's how we think we think, I think I'm on that And what's so powerful and so amazing about grace, it takes that way of thinking and turns it upside down. And it says, no, all human beings are equally fallen. All human beings are equally in need of salvation that only God can bring. And it is equally available to all. It is freely offered by grace. To all who believe through Christ, it is inclusive, but it's exclusive. Now as we understand this paradox, we really understand grace, it really does become amazing. There's three things that really, I think, stick out or, or empower or enabling about grace as we understand it. One thing I'd say is the word hope. The paradox of grace gives tremendous hope. You know, Jesus once taught a parable about two guys who went to the temple. One was a religious leader. They called them Pharisees back then. They were great guys. They were uh, uh, moral and very proud of how moral they were and how holy they were. And he went. And he told God how great he was, how much money he gave, how he didn't cheat on his wife, All these wonderful things he didn't do. And then beside him, there was a guy who was a tax collector. That's a very bad person in their culture. And this guy went forward in the temple, fell on his face. He wouldn't look up. He just said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, who do you think went away right with God? And everybody said, well, I think the the guy did. And he, he said, that's exactly right. See, grace gives hope to sinful people. But it also warns moral people. Grace gives hope to the sinful. But it's a warning to the moral. Do you really think you're that good? Do you think you're that good at riding a bike? You don't need the car? It's a warning. It's a warning. And what it says to you and I is this. God really would rather you and I be real than perfect. You know one of the greatest things you and I can ever do as human beings is really own our own sin and be honest and be real. Not try to project perfection and get it all together, but just be real be honest. Grace gives hope. The New Testament First book in the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of Jesus' followers. He was Jewish. He was a tax collector. And Matthew, for the first 17 chapters, this is the greatest story ever told. The story of Jesus. So you think it's going to have a great start. First chapter, first 17 verses, you know what he does? You gotta read it sometime when you're tired. He'd fall asleep. He gives a genealogy for 17 verses of all of Jesus Christ's male descendants. It's very common to do. But there's like 40 some odd generations of Hebrew names you and I could never pronounce. And he just goes through this list. This guy begot this guy. And this guy that we can't pronounce. We got this guy whose name we can't pronounce, and he just went on and on, except for in four places. He does something really odd. Nobody ever would have done it in that antiquity. That's something you would have, you and I would have noticed had we been reading it. He, he four times he mentions the mom. Four times just mentions the mom, and that would catch your eye. But also what's interesting is what about the mom and the story behind the mom? The first mom, first mom he mentions there is a gal named Tamar. She was a Gentile, not a Jew. And what happened to her, she was a, a woman who was uh, the daughter-in-law, a guy named Judah. All his sons had died. She got worried she wasn't going to have a, a, an heir. And so she dresses up like a prostitute seduces her father-in-law and they have twins. And one of those twins is mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. A father-in-law having sex with his daughter-in-law. You go on, he goes through the, the rest of that genealogy. The next uh, story that gets mentioned is a story of a guy named Lot. One of Abraham's uh, in uh, relatives and Lot had two daughters and they got again worried they weren't going to have a an offspring so they got their dad drunk slept with him and they had children that were part of this race one of the ancestors of Jesus came from that incest, a drunken dad, seduced by his daughters, what kind of horrifying event that could be and then you go on, and there's another gal mentioned named Rahab. Her story's found in the book of Joshua. Rahab was a pagan prostitute. This is what Reagan's, Rahab's job was. She would literally go and you know, seduce men. She would be at this pagan temple, and she would go through these pagan rituals. And in those pagan rituals, she would invite demons to come live inside her. And once these spirits of these gods lived inside her, she would have sex with men who thought they were uh, cohabitating with deity. That's what she did. And she's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In the last one to mention, and it doesn't even mention her name, but her name was Bathsheba. Matthew just calls her she who had been Uriah's wife, we know that story a lot of us. She was uh, the wife of a guy named Uriah, who was one of David's top warriors. David saw her one day bathing when the, the other guys were out to war. He had relations with her, he got her pregnant. He had his good friend. I mean, his loyal general, his wife pregnant. And he tried to trick him, it didn't work out. So instead of facing what happened, he sent this guy into a battle and told the other troops to leave and retreat. Lily sent him out as he's bravely fighting for his country and for his king. Everybody else leaves him and he's murdered by the enemy. And Matthew, in writing this genealogy, man, wants you and I, he wants his Jewish audience to remember these four stories, these four women, as he's telling you, this is where Jesus Christ came from. He came through the canal of incest. He came through the canal of adultery. He came through the canal of of murder and dark sexual depravity. I think it's so important for us humans because I think for a lot of us, our most shameful things in our life have to do with that area of our life. And it's so powerful in such an artful way. God's communicating to to all of us that He came to us through real human depravity to save real human depravity. And it's grace. And it gives us hope. Because we all have times where we feel dirty and we're, we're dark and our, our sins are uh, just horrible on us. But it's to know the Son of God came to us through that. And he, didn't, he didn't come to condemn us. He didn't come to put us down. He came to bring salvation. To wipe the slate clean. That you and I could stand before God. Clean and right. And what's so amazing about grace is hope. Hope. Now I have hope today. And you and I can all have hope. No matter how sinful, no matter how bad. No matter how dark, stained we feel. Him says there's a grace that is greater than all our sin, than all our sin. The second amazing thing about grace is idea of assurance, and idea of certainty. You know, I would not want to live my life unsure about the most important things in it. Because of grace because God's put the burden of your salvation and my salvation on him you know what we can be we can be certain we can be certain and what certainty does it, it makes the dependent secure but it makes the deserving very agitated I'm deserving I'm deserving and it just gets agitated he says no 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 the dependent are the ones that feel secure. It's real humility to sit there and say, you know, nothing I've done. I can't come to God based on anything I've done. I can't appeal to Him based on anything I've accomplished. Anything, any good deed, any, any a consortium of, of, of nice, righteous works. I can only appeal to Him through the death of His Son, but what an appeal that blood that was spilled on the cross really is. What an appeal. And it brings confidence and assurance and a certainty. And it's not arrogance, it's humility. Where I am completely depending on another. Completely. Assurance. And the last thing is the way grace changes us personally. Anybody here like me need to be changed? Anybody need to get better? A few of you? That's good to know. (laughs) We need to get better, don't we? Here's what we generally think, and this is this is the again. It's what's so counterintuitive about grace. We think, you know, what if I'm compliant, God will give me favor. God will give me. God will respond to how good I am. God will respond to how wonderful I'm acting. God will respond to me. Here's the powerful thing about grace. When we realize God has responded. God has already favored us. We will comply with Him. We think compliance brings grace. No, 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 Grace makes you and I compliant. That's what's amazing about grace. This way it can powerfully affect our soul. It can cause us to really live differently and distinctly. Not because we're hoping to get a reward for something. It's because we believe God has already favored us and already done for us. And the power of that and the strength of the assurance that comes causes us to just live a different life. Live a changed life. What's so amazing about grace is that in Christ, God has done something remarkable to fix completely fix the condition of every human being because of what he did he's met all the conditions he's met all the prerequisites and he just asked us to believe and to receive that's what's amazing about grace grace saves anybody but it saves nobody independent of Jesus. So my call to you is that if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never just received what he's done on the cross, I'm gonna give you an opportunity today to do that as we pray, to receive him, to make what he's done on the cross yours and experience what's so absolutely amazing about grace, let's let's pray together. Some guys are coming up to receive communion in the band, but if you're here, you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Receive His grace, just if you would. I want you to raise your hand while you're at. I want to pray for you. I see that hand. Anybody else want to do that? Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've not done that? You want to. receive His grace. We pray for the person. Just raise your hand, just pray with me. Say, oh God, I know I've sinned. I know I've come short of what you have for my life. But I also believe Jesus died on the cross, took away my sins and joins me to you. And now I ask Jesus to come into my life, be the Lord of my life, and take away my sin. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.